Good afternoon. My name is James Randall, and I'm a political science major here at Calvin. And it is my privilege to welcome you all today to the 2012 January series. Before we begin, please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn about the complex relationship between religion and politics. Bless our nation's policymakers as they seek to establish justice and peace in a pervasively fallen and chaotic world. Help us as Christians to respond with conviction, yet conviction characterized by humility rather than arrogance, and love rather than fear. Remind us of your certainty in an uncertain world. In your name we pray. Amen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce President Galen Biker. Michael Gerson is a nationally syndicated columnist who appears twice weekly in the Washington Post. He's the author of Historic Conservatism and co-author of City of Man, Religion and Politics in the New Era. Gerson is a senior advisor to One, a bipartisan organization affiliated with Bono and dedicated to the fight against poverty and preventable diseases. He serves on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council and the Holocaust Museum's Committee on Conscience. He mentioned last night that he had been at the premiere with Angelina Jolie of the film about the Bosnian genocide just a couple nights ago. He's also the director, a director of Bread for the World and the Initiative for Global Development Leadership. From 2006 to 2009, Gerson was the Roger Hertog Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Before joining the Council on Foreign Relations, he was a top aide to President George W. Bush as assistant to the President for Policy and Strategic Planning. He was a key administration advocate for the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the President's Malaria Initiative, and the fight against global sex trafficking. Prior to that appointment, he served in the White House as assistant to the President for speech writing and as a policy advisor. Before that, he was senior editor covering politics at U.S. News and World Report. He worked for Jack Kemp and Bob Dole in the 1996 presidential campaign, and he served Senator Dan Coats as policy director. Michael is a graduate of Wheaton College, and since, 19, excuse me, since 2010, he has contributed a regular audio commentary entitled Decision for the Center for Public Justice which is broadcast via the Center's College Radio Partnership and transcribed as the lead feature for the Center's weekly Capital Commentary Journal. In 2010, Michael gave the Center for Public Justice Kuiper Lecture entitled City of Man on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. This was the beginning of a fruitful collaboration with Michael, who has spoken as a guest of the Center for audiences in Chicago, Boston, and Princeton, and as the Gospel and Culture Lecturer at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Beginning this month, the Center for Public Justice welcomes Michael Gerson as a visiting fellow. This Calvin January Lecture Series is Michael's first event as a fellow of the Center. Please join me in welcoming Michael Gerson.
Thank you so much. That's much appreciated. I'm honored to be back at Calvin. I'm especially honored to be part of the January series. Um, people such as David Gergen and N.T. Wright and Adam Taylor are friends of mine and some of the people that I respect most in the world, and I'm grateful to be considered in that company. Life offers some pleasant contrasts. Um, here I am at the main center of Christian learning in America, other than Wheaton, um, and it's a measure of how uh, varied my life is that two nights ago, this is true what the president said, I was at a party with Angelina Jolie, um, and it's a measure of how boring I am that my wife had to tell me who she is. <laughs> this is the very middle of a fascinating political season. Any process that includes Donald Trump, Herman Cain, and Newt Gingrich is high entertainment. <laughs> but today I want to focus on some large shifts in the Christian model of social engagement. Shifts that are larger than a single election. Shifts that will determine much about the path of American politics and the image of Christians in the world. But let me start by telling you just a little about myself. Speechwriters are supposed to be anonymous, and at this task I've succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> I didn't uh, take the typical Washington path. I was a Bible and theology major at Wheaton College in Illinois. Um, as um, most of you know, it's a pretty religiously conservative place. The uh, joke on campus when I went there was that the administration had banned premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. Out of uh, college, I went to work um, at Prison Fellowship Ministries for Chuck Colson, who will be remembered as one of the great social reformers of the 20th century. How we treat prisoners, some of the most despised people in our society, is a test of our commitment to the idea of human dignity. And the former prisoners I met working at Prison Fellowship will always be my greatest example of the transforming power of Christ people more mature in their faith than I could ever hope to be. But my driving interest was political. I spent some time as a policy advisor on Capitol Hill, some time as a political journalist. Then I got a call from then Governor George Bush of Texas, who wanted to meet me at a DC hotel. The first thing he said to me was, this isn't an interview, I've read your stuff, I want you to write my announcement speech, my convention speech, and my inaugural address and I want you to move to Austin immediately. At that point, he was not a declared candidate, um, but I uh, packed up my family and went. From the beginning, we were a little bit of an odd couple. He's outgoing, social, athletic, likable, and I'm actually none of those things. Um, <laughs> I, he has a uh, penchant for locker room humor that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I uh, remember after one policy session at the governor's mansion in Austin, everyone had gone but me, and the governor had some time before his next appointment. He asked me, do you want to hang out a little while? With a rudeness that now seems crazed, I replied, not really. <laughs> um, not the uh, best way to treat a future president. But I came to respect Bush as a politician and as a person. He is, above all, a man without a mask. 
Interest, frustration, boredom, sadness come unfiltered to his face. He's kind and loyal to the people around him. And he can can occasionally be sharp-tongued. Every year on the State of the Union address, the president sits down with all the network anchors for a time of question-answer. At one of those sessions, I remember the late Peter Jennings asked him, what does it feel like to go before the nation and read someone else's words? The president immediately replied, you do it every night. My um, life changed direction on September 11th, 2001, like the lives of many. I was working at home. The president was in Florida. When my deputy, uh, Pete Wainer, is also the co-author of the book that I just uh, worked on, um, who was watching events in New York, called me to say that I should come in immediately. I was headed into work on a clear morning down Interstate 395 when I saw a plane flying low over the highway headed toward the Pentagon, so low that I could see the windows. Days later, I sat in the National Cathedral for the memorial service. And I saw how, in a few historical moments, the words, the rhetoric, can really matter to the country. The president said, this world he created is of moral design. Grief and sadness and hatred are only for a time. Goodness, remembrance, and love have no end. And the Lord of life holds all who mourn, all who die, and all who mourn. The pace of those years in the White House, including 9-11, war, natural disaster, was at times exhausting. It has a cost to your health. In December of 2004, while working on the President's second inaugural address, I had a heart attack. The president's doctor had me checked into the hospital under an assumed name to avoid all the press calls, adding insult to incapacity. There wasn't a single call. (laughs) Um, And it has a cost for your family. Uh, During the heat of the presidential election of 2004, my little boy Nicholas, then six years old, announced to me in the car one day that he wanted John Kerry for president. When I uh, asked him why, he said, so you can be home on weekends. My uh, nine-year-old, who is a little more practical, then said, but how would we eat? (laughs) Um, I told him, I think I can get a job. I might go to a think tank. And he said, of course, what's a think tank? So I told him, well, it's people who read and speak and have meetings and things. And Bucky, and this is true, said, You mean they don't do anything? (laughs) Um, After the 2004 election, my job at the White House changed. I became a policy advisor focused on global health, development, genocide, areas where my interests had been leading me for many years. And I saw something very hopeful. In one of the bitterest times of partisanship in modern political history, I also found a number of issues where members of both parties and people of every ideology have come together. As part of my job at the White House, I worked with conservative and liberal groups to fight global AIDS, to confront malaria, to oppose global sex trafficking, and to confront the crisis in Darfur. And I've seen some odd alliances grow. I've gotten to know Bono of U2 over the years. Um, A couple of years ago, he invited me to the first rock concert I had ever attended. 
and it was loud. <laughs> uh, soon afterwards, my, my wife and I had dinner with Bono, who was a very idealistic and principled man. After dinner, my wife told me, you may be idealistic and principled, but it would also be nice if you were rich and cool. <laughs> now I am a um, columnist for the Washington Post, associations with a variety of good institutions. And I have uh, co-authored um, a recent book called City of Man that wades into the current debate on faith and politics. We should start, I think, with one recognition. To the faithful, faith is far more important than politics. Nations and governments are temporary, while the journey of the soul is eternal. But the public expression of faith often reveals the deepest commitments of the faithful and determines their image in the world. Are believers concerned mainly about themselves or about others? Do they reflect a belief in an angry God or a loving God? Do they exemplify judgment or grace? Following Haiti's massive earthquake, one religious leader asserted that the tragedy extinguishing more than 100,000 lives was God's punishment on a nation dedicated to the devil. Others rushed to alleviate the suffering of the Haitian people. Advocates of both views were expressing a political theology, a view of how religious people should react to injustice in the world. Sorting out the proper relationship between religion and politics is particularly difficult for Christians. Unlike Moses or Muhammad, Jesus of Nazareth did not set out a political blueprint or ideal of any kind. He specifically rejected the political utopianism of some of his followers. He lived within a Roman Empire that he barely mentioned. His main arguments were with religious authorities, not political ones. He proclaimed a kingdom not of this world, which consisted of transformed lives, not alternative leaders and legal structures. Yet the founder of Christianity was executed, in part, as an enemy of the state. Political and religious leaders found the otherworldly kingdom he declared to be threatening because it demanded obedience to an authority beyond their own. His followers were soon being executed for failing to show proper respect to the Roman emperor. Christians in the Roman world challenged the political status quo on a number of issues, on issues such as slavery, infanticide, and the status of women. While Christianity taught no ideal government, love your neighbor had social and political consequences. Christians in every generation have been left with the same tension. They inhabit, in St. Augustine's vivid phrase, the city of man, the realm of history, government, and politics, while owing their ultimate allegiance to the city of God. This dual citizenship is difficult. When the faithful exercise political power, it can result in oppression and discredit the faith itself. But when the faithful ignore political power, they can also bring discredit to their ideals and betray their neighbors. Sins of omission can be deadly as well. So politics is both a temptation and a responsibility, an addictive drug and a healing medicine. Reflecting on these issues is always important. Now I think it is urgent because we have entered a time of transition. One political theology, the model of the religious right, is passing in America. 
Another still unformed is taking its place. It's an exciting moment when new movements and institutions are taking shape. It's also a plastic moment, a moment when small flaws might be introduced that eventually lead to large cracks, rendering the vessel useless. Errors at the beginning of an enterprise are always the most dangerous. A time of change is a time of heightened responsibility. Precisely because the institutions and leaders of the religious right are passing, it is now possible to take some stock of its successes and failures, and we should take the successes seriously. The religious right gained many critics, but it also displayed a number of democratic virtues. The cultural separatism of many evangelicals following the fundamentalist modernist controversy was an understandable reaction to a hostile culture, but it was also an abdication of citizenship. Religious right leaders led a group of alienated voters back into the public square after a generation in the wilderness. The religious right employed all the traditional methods of democratic engagement, voter registration drives, training activists, knocking on doors, conducting marches and demonstrations. With any other alienated group of American voters, this re-engagement would be regarded as democratic prog progress, as it should be regarded in the case of the religious right. Another democratic virtue of the religious right, perhaps surprisingly, was its religious inclusiveness. Falwell's moral majority was specifically designed to include Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and Mormons. The pro-life movement involved close cooperation between fundamentalists and Catholics. The establishment of a political coalition based on shared moral values required the toning down of theological exclusivity and the overcoming of old prejudices. Groups divided by large theological gaps found themselves sharing the same political and cultural foxholes. This cooperation between evangelical Protestants and Catholics is particularly noteworthy. Their mutual antipathy has been a feature of American politics for most of our history. Historian Arthur M. Schlesinger once called prejudice against Catholics, quote, the deepest bias in the history of the American people. Following a wave of Catholic immigration in the early 19th century, the Know Nothing Party preached a vicious brand of anti-Catholicism with broad social resonance. Evangelicals often thought of Romanism and alcohol, which they regarded as synonymous, as the greatest threats to America. Mobs in, in Boston burned Irish Catholic homes in 1829 and, eight, uh, 1829 and 1833. In 1844, Catholics in Philadelphia petitioned the school board to allow Catholic students to read their own version of the Bible instead of the King James Version. Protestants accused Catholics of trying to ban the Bible entirely. Nativist rioters burned two Catholic churches to the ground and hundreds of Catholic homes. Twenty people died in the violence. In light of this history of mutual suspicion, the close cooperation of evangelicals and Catholics fostered by the religious right was unprecedented. Catholic leaders such as Representative Henry Hyde, Justice Antonin Scalia, became heroes to many conservative Protestants. Evangelicals broadly respected Pope John Paul II for his pro-life convictions, his opposition to communism, and his personal holiness. In 1994, conservative Protestant leader Charles Colson and Father Richard John Newhouse co-signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, indicating a broad ecumenical rapprochement. Common moral values and political concerns had at least partially overcome old theological conflicts.
Despite many setbacks, the religious right succeeded in demonstrating a broad resistance to the legal establishment of secularism. Elements of modern liberalism have contended and still contend that religiously motivated arguments are fundamentally private and thus illegitimate as a basis for public policy. This novel conception of the separation of church and state means that citizens may advocate a certain political view because of utilitarianism or liberalism or vegetarianism, but not because of their moral views rooted in Christianity or Judaism. Religious conservatives have stoutly resisted this notion. They've reminded us that much of American political history, from abolition to the civil rights movement, is a story of religiously informed social activism. They've stood for the principle that a genuine pluralism must include religious people. All this has to be conceded. But as a social movement, the religious right cannot be considered a model. The language and tone of the religious right was often apocalyptic, off-putting, and counterproductive. It seemed to thrive on the cultivation of crisis. Just like, the Nazi, just like Nazi Germany did to the Jews, said Jerry Falwell, so liberal America is now doing to evangelical Christians. Never again, said a Christian coalition mailing, will we be subject to a government that dishonors our Lord. Such melodrama was good for fundraising, but bad for American politics. It was not enough for political opponents to be wrong. They were modern Nazis and enemies of God. This approach makes a civil political conversation impossible, not to mention its effect on the broader Christian witness to society. According to theologian Carl Henry, the religious right adopted a, quote, political methodology which reflected the emotive rather than the rational character of contemporary politics. Reason discourse was neglected for semantic combat. Media one-liners compensated for a lack of think tanks, and public demonstrations largely replaced the efforts to persuade wavering or unconvinced office holders. In short, the new Christian right forfeited the opportunity to formulate a persuasive public policy and to exhibit what it means to engage in politics Christianly, end quote. Too often, the political engagement of the religious right was politically predictable. During the 1980s, the Christian voice issued political report cards measuring candidates' views not only on school prayer and abortion, but also on support for an American defense treaty with Taiwan and opposition to the National Department of Education. There were no categories concerning the relief of poverty or racial equality. This highly partisan selection of issues left a strong impression that the religious right was a tool of a specific political ideology instead of an independent voice. Like the social gospel before it, the religious right seemed to baptize someone else's political agenda instead of providing a unique perspective based on a different set of moral priorities. And this is controversial, but I think that the most important problem of the religious right was not tonal or strategic, it was theological. Conservative Christians have sometimes simplistically identified biblical teachings on the nature and destiny of Israel with their conception of the nature and destiny of America. Because ancient Israel was rewarded or punished by God because of the conduct of its people and rulers, America 
would be rewarded or punished by God because of the conduct of its people and rulers. A corrupt present was compared to an idealized past in which America was a Christian nation deserving of divine blessing. The idea of a Christian America represents a misunderstanding of history. America was not founded as a Christian nation precisely because the founders were informed by a Christian and Jewish understanding of human nature. Since humans are autonomous moral beings created in God's image, freedom of conscience is essential to their dignity. On religious matters, the founders asserted, citizens should be subject to God and their conscience, not to the state, at least where the federal government was concerned. America was designed to be a pluralistic nation in which all faiths are welcomed, not a Christian nation in which one faith is favored. And disestablishment has served the Christian faith well, preserving it from being corrupted and tainted by political power. This confusion of America with ancient Israel, with its assumption that corporate morality determines divine favor, can lead to theological and moral absurdities. In response to a uh, gay pride day at Walt Disney World, Pat Robertson once said, I would warn Orlando that you're right in the way of some serious hurricanes, and I don't think I'd be waving those flags in God's face if I were you. Following the September 11, 2001 attacks in New York and Pennsylvania, Robertson and Falwell blamed abortionists, feminists, gays and lesbians, the ACLU, and the people for the American way for America's deserved punishment on 9-11. Without denying that God is ultimately in charge of human history, it is necessary to assert that such interpretations of tragic events are arrogant, offensive, and theologically unsound. It is not immediately evident why religious right leaders should have special prophetic insight into God's purposes in history, or why the failures that especially offend them should count more than other sins, such as pride, social injustice, and indifference to the poor, the actual priorities of Old Testament prophets warning Israel's rulers, or why a child in Orlando should die in a hurricane because a homosexual attends an amusement park, or why a family of a 9-11 victim should blame the ACLU rather than Al-Qaeda. A simplistic conception of divine providence, the punishment of individuals for the sake of corporate offenses, makes a mockery of individual moral agency and opens Christian leaders to charges of monstrous indifference to tragedy. This approach, in fact, closely resembles other fundamentalist religious traditions that associate the moral practices of a nation with divine favor or disfavor. Not long ago, a senior Iranian cleric blamed earthquakes in his country on declining sexual standards. Quote, Many women who do not dress modestly lead young men astray, corrupt their chastity, and spread adultery in society, which increases earthquakes. What can be done to avoid their being buried under the rubble, he asked. There is no solution but to take refuge in religion. Suffice it to say that if the correlation between a lack of modesty and earthquakes existed, Brazil would seldom have a moment's peace. <laughs> every nation, like every life, is a mixture of ruin and nobility. The antithesis between godliness and ungodliness is very real, says theologian Richard Mao. But it is discernible not only in the larger patterns of culture, 
but also in the inner battlegrounds of our own souls. In Christian belief, God's ultimate goal is to bring men and women into communion with himself. His dealings with the world serve that purpose, and God's purpose is often advanced through through redemptive suffering, which is not a punishment, but a mystery and a method of grace. Just as cancer is not a sign of divine disfavor, hurricanes are not a sign of divine punishment. The workings of God in the midst of tragedy cannot be reduced to a simplistic moral mathematics in which sin yields disaster, precisely because America is not a covenant community on the model of ancient Israel. The community of faith is found in every nation. Believers share the blessings and tragedies of their neighbors and should work and pray for the common good, not declare the sufferings of their neighbors to be something deserved. All of these failures, failures of tone, strategy, sympathy, and theology, combine to cause a social backlash deeper than political trends. The politicization of religion by the religious right, argues sociologist Robert Putnam, caused many young people in the 1990s to turn against religion itself, adopting the attitude, if this is religion, I am not interested. Americans in, the, in their 20s are now much more secular than baby boomers were at the same stage in life. About 30 to 35% are now religiously unaffiliated. Putnam calls this a stunning development. The religious right, it turns out, was not particularly good for religion. And this checkered history has led some religious people to reconsider political engagement entirely. They think it is not worth the risk and the cost. They talk about how culture is more important than politics or they turn to more secular forms of engagement. They embrace indifference, or even worse, the Tea Party. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just a (laughs) gratuitous swipe. But abandoning a faith-based politics is not really an option. People of faith, along with others, are the carriers of an important ideal. Most elements of religious faith, to be honest, in my view, have no political relevance at all. Soteriology, eschatology, all the things that I studied in, in, uh, in college don't really matter very much in public policy. Imposing such views by law is disastrous for the church and the state. But there is one element of religious teaching with dramatic public consequences anthropology, beliefs about human worth, human nature, and human destiny. Why are human beings valuable? Why do they always matter more than a utilitarian calculation? The philosophers have their questionable and questioned theories. Jews and Christians have an answer. They believe that human beings are created equal in worth in the image of God. Christianity is not defined by political or social change, but it requires an unavoidably political question. What if every human being we meet, and every prisoner in a maximum security cell, and every hungry child in a distant land, and every unwed mother, and everyone with a severe disability, and everyone we love, and everyone we hate, is actually the reflected image of the creator 
the most precious thing we will ever touch and see in this life. This agenda isn't identical to any ideology or political party. It stands in judgment of them all. But this belief has consequences for the conduct of politics and for the content of politics. The tone, bearing, and countenance of religious social engagement are especially important. There are practical reasons for using language that is judicious, reasonable, and sober rather than aggressive, abrasive, and abusive. On the whole, people are drawn to a cause that is amiable and peaceable. But employing the right tone depends on more than utilitarian calculations. More fundamentally, it has to do with our view of human dignity. It means treating people with respect and good manners regardless of the views they might hold. A significant disconnect between one's content and one's tone, between the religious case for human dignity and the language of anger and desperation can be discrediting. And the content of religious social engagement is justice. Not just the impartial application of laws and rules, although that is important, but the way that the poor and vulnerable are treated in a society. And this is always a matter of urgency. In April of 1963, a group of eight Birmingham clergy members made a famous argument about the limits and dangers of political activism. Writing in the Birmingham News, they criticized civil rights demands as, quote, unwise and untimely, and urged believers to show patience. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., then in the Birmingham City Jail, began writing a response on the margins of a newspaper. King's argument was simple and damning. Patience for political injustice comes easier for those who are not currently experiencing injustice. Perhaps it is easy, he said, for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen the vicious mobs lynch your daughters and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. All of the cautions about a politicized faith are true. Thinkers such as Reinhold Niebuhr were correct to urge realism about the world, humility in making grand moral claims, and suspicion about our own political motives. But Christians, particularly younger Christians, should internalize King's prison letter before accepting Niebuhr's corrective. Changing a culture of bigotry required both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, coercive measures that created a social expectation of equal treatment and shifted the political balance of power in America. And none of this would have happened without idealism, impatience, and the single-minded pursuit of justice. At any given moment in a democracy, great issues of justice and morality are at stake. The idea that people of faith can take a sabbatical from politics to collect their thoughts and lick their wounds is a form of irresponsibility. It is, in fact, an argument that could only be made by comfortable Christians. If one lived in a neighborhood plagued by poverty, 
dominated by gangs, and served by failing schools, there is no sabbatical from the failures of politics. Getting drug dealers off the corner and teaching children the basics of reading and math are at least as important as long-term cultural change and certainly more urgent. If one lived in a foreign country without medicines for AIDS, malaria, or tuberculosis, or dominated by a cruel dictator, the current policy priorities of the American people and its government would matter greatly to you. Retreating from the cause of justice, even temporarily, is only conceivable for those who have few needs for justice themselves. The alternative to doing politics badly is doing politics better, not turning against the political process itself. The focus of our political engagement will naturally vary by interest and background, but the primary shared Christian political commitment, the value and dignity of every human life, is challenged at home and across the world by poverty and family breakdown and racism and corruption and slavery and preventable disease and wasteful conflict. We cannot praise the examples of Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer and remain blind to the challenges of our time. The world does not lack for great causes. It only lacks for people who will make those causes their own. In a limited way, I've seen what politics can accomplish. My best experience in government was this. I sat in the Oval Office and watch President George W. Bush make the decision to approve the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, the largest initiative to fight a single disease in human history. And I've seen the results. Until six or seven years ago, in a Catholic orphanage I visited in Ethiopia, um, the sisters could only hold the hands of children as they died. Not a single one survived. Some of the orphans were blinded by infections. Some of them, I was told, asked the sisters, why can't you go, come with me where I'm going? Why do I have to go alone? But when the AIDS drug started arriving, no child is now dying at that orphanage. I saw infants who had their sight restored. I met children who had come back from the brink of death like Lazarus. It is the closest I have ever come to seeing the wonders of the New Testament. More than five million Africans are now on AIDS treatment. Americans should know about this achievement and be proud of it. And religious people should be the strongest base of support for such works of healing and mercy. Politics has many dangers, frustrations, and failures. But having held those children... I will never be cynical about politics. I have seen in just a glimpse, just a glimmer, what justice looks like. And those who have seen it can never be the same. Thank you very much. We have some time for questions, and Michael is uh, great at dialogue. There are microphones at the top of the aisles here and in the uh, balcony. So 
please state your question clearly and succinctly, and Michael will call on you uh, as we have an opportunity. Who's first? Go ahead. This is a bit peripheral to your talk, but I um, wondered if you could reflect on this, given your values. Uh, I read a book a little while ago, a number of years ago, by Samantha Power, on, uh, mm -hmm. which you probably are familiar with. Uh, sure. I know Samantha. She's now at the National Security Council in the Obama administration. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a powerful and disturbing book, and I wonder if you could reflect a bit on what you think the West's response to genocide should be. I always thought that the Clinton administration's biggest sin of omission was not responding well to the Rwandan crisis. And, of course, now in, in a post-Iraq culture, we're schizophrenic about Darfur and other things. But is it just strategic interest, or is there a certain moral obligation that uh, particularly the, the U.S. has in response to obvious genocide? Samantha Powers, in this book that all of you should be familiar with, um, called The Problem from Hell. It's a book on genocide. Um, uh, ultimately comes to the conclusion that... Uh, America has failed in almost every single case in history on the issue of genocide because there's no political constituency for intervention. Um, I, many of these uh, problems often come in difficult historical moments. So in the Clinton administration, they had uh, Black Hawk Down um, in Somalia right before Rwanda. So they had been burned by, uh, you, you know, intervention and engagement. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the killing of, um, of Ar the Armenians after World War II was in the, af the aftermath of an exhausting war. Um, and uh, so there are always reasons for not acting in, the, in these circumstances. Um, and sometimes they're very, very complex. Um, and so I... Um, I've spent a significant amount of time in Eastern Congo. In fact, I'm going back next week. Um, and that, that's a situation I once visited a child soldier demobilization center where they had a chart on the wall with all the rebel groups they had taken children out of, and there were 16 rebel groups. Okay? These can be unbelievably d difficult, uh, challenging historical moments. But I, I mentioned being at this uh, uh, Jolie film, which... Uh, which is called in the, in the Land of Blood and Honey, um, which is also something you should see because it's on the Bosnian genocide. Um, and uh, it perfectly illustrates the point that uh, the ethnic cleansing uh, in Muslim areas in, in the, in, during that war um, went on for years while uh, the American Secretary of State said, we don't have a dog in this fight. Um, and eventually, it required the intervention of NATO to prevent the atrocities from being uh, completely implemented. Um, and uh, so that set of issues is a particularly difficult one. I, I will only say, you know, that um, having been on the government side of it and looking at the Darfur crisis, for example, um, that uh, there, are, there are sometimes frustrating limits to American power. Um, and uh, so in that crisis, there was a huge effort at humanitarian relief. But sometimes the, the problem is a vacuum of political authority, okay, or just political authority. Congo is in a similar circumstance. And that is a huge problem of international affairs. What do you do to fill a vacuum of political authority, just political authority? Um, 
you know, the UN can't do it, peacekeepers can't do it. It's just very hard. It requires, you know, long-term answers. But that's a, a long way of saying that I think this is a set of issues that, that uh, the Christians in particular need to be, uh, you know, concerned about. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, draw your attention to, to, to the problem in Congo. Um, I, you know, that's a civil war that's gone on for more than 16 years, millions of casualties. Gets almost no attention in America, um, and there are these, uh, uh, you know, kind of crises that I think deserve more attention than they get. Mm-hmm. Thank you. First, let me thank you for a very wise, insightful, and very challenging presentation. And I say that as a card-carrying member of both the ACLU and the People for the American Way. <laughs> okay, I defended you in this. Uh, you did. You did. <laughs> you did. And I, I thank you for that. As a brother in the Lord, I want to ask how both your current theology and your past experience with prison fellowship now shapes your views on two things. One, the American use of torture, uh, euphemistically called enhanced interrogation techniques upon certain classes of prisoners, and secondly, the continuing existence of our prison at Guantanamo Bay. Well, I will tell you my, my own view, which I've, I've written on. Um, the, uh, I have great respect. Uh, yeah, let me start this way. Um, the, it is the nature of government that it involves coercion. That is true of making people pay their taxes. That is true of the conduct of war. That is true of the police powers of the state. Um, and that is a difficult thing. It's a power that's denied to individuals. There are strong, respected, admirable um, traditions of the Christian church that say that, uh, that Christians cannot engage in, in, uh, in coercion uh, through government um, and thus should not serve in government or serve in the military. And those were very early traditions. Um, that's not a, a view that I share, um, and I think that uh, you know many other tra- traditions do not. So, but Christians have often tried then to provide a set of boundaries or limits on what the conduct of these police powers and these state powers might be, and have developed just war theories and and. Uh, uh, Determining, uh, you know, how to how to apply violence and coercion uh, in in a way that minimizes uh, the uh, moral risk. Um, that's a difficult set of uh, tasks, and I know a lot of people in the military and in the intelligence community, and their job is not an easy one. Um, they are presented with a set of moral challenges when it comes to gaining information and, and their set of moral challenges that if they fail to gain infor- uh, uh, information that they are uh, themselves become responsible for the deaths of civilians. Um, so it's not an easy thing that they engage in. Um, I, almost everyone would say that there's a continuum there on how you do interrogation to gain information. Um, and uh, I have publicly said that I think that, that waterboarding crosses the line, but I do not believe that every type of interrogation 
sleep deprivation or other methods are illegitimate when your job is to save people's lives. Um, that's a difficult set of issues, and I, it's, I think it's fair to say uh, the reason I have some sympathy for people who have to do this for a living is that all of these issues, all of politics, is really conducted on a slippery slope. Um, that it's very easy to, uh, uh, you know, to make errors in very difficult um, matters. All that said, I, I would defend our military and intelligence community in one important way when it comes to Christian just war theory. Um, I have never seen individuals that are more committed to protecting uh, innocent civilians from harm. It's true of our military in particular. When we did uh, uh, bombings and targeting, there were actually a set of lawyers at the Defense Department that would analyze targets in order to minimize civilian casualties. Um, and that was not a practice, I promise you, in World War II with Dresden and with Hiroshima and other, uh, and other issues. Um, I think that America now conducts wars in a way that's far more just than we ever have in our history. Um, and it, because of precision munitions, but also because of the, the way that people in our military approach these issues, which is deeply moral and responsible, in my experience. So, all that said, I think there are a bunch of very difficult debates, particularly in the margins of that. Debates not just about Guantanamo and, and uh, interrogation, but also about drone strikes, which have dramatically increased in, in, uh, during the Obama administration. Um, you know, there are serious questions here. Um, but, it's, um, I, but I guess my, my response would be that, um, uh, that government, uh, particularly when you're dealing with national security, um, sometimes it involves some very, very conflicted and difficult choices. Thank you very much for the statement as to Haiti, given the two-year anniversary, mm -hmm. and whether the most devilish people or whether the most Christian people in a time of hurt and need are reaching hand of help is what we can give as to our hearts and minds and souls. So thank you. Second, on this same slippery slope, um, assassination as a place and also as to desecration of the dead, two recent events as to politics of this week. Thank you. Yeah, I think that um, I will tell you, having been there, that one of my worst moments, I described one of my best moments uh, in government, but one of my uh, worst moments when the, um, were when the uh, pictures uh, came out from the um, Abu Ghraib, the, the prison, um, which uh, showed sadism and, and, uh, and cruelty um, that was, I think, deeply discrediting to America and to, uh, and to our cause in the world. Um, and so, I, you know, I guess my reaction to that is that what, what we've seen even in the last few days um, is deeply disturbing. Um, the, um, uh, it's, I, w I would have to, you know, protest, however, that this is not 
I don't think that what we're seeing is the systematic practice of our military. Um, I think that they immediately investigate and try to, uh, in whatever way they can, to make amends for these kind of cases. Um, but I will have to tell you that I, everything we do in the world is not only a matter of balance of power. Uh, it also, there is what you call soft power, which is the way you're viewed in the world. Um, I think something like the AIDS initiative or the president's malaria initiative weighs on the positive side there. I think some of these terrible pictures of abuse and these horrors um, weigh very much on the negative side. Um, and it's a, uh, I, I think it's a challenge to every administration to convey down the chain of command um, about the way that, uh, you know, what conduct actually serves the, con the, uh, the interests of the country. I, I, too, would like to thank you for a well-nuanced address on the relation of Christian faith and politics and for your critique of some simplistic answers. We have had here at Calvin College two faculty members who have served representing this district in Congress. One was Paul Henry, the son of Dr. Carl Henry, and the other was Vern Ehlers. I don't know if you followed the career of either one of them, but they attempted to integrate their Christian faith in a very responsible way. Would you care to comment on either one if you knew them and their, and their careers? I didn't know them personally, but their reputation, particularly Paul Henry's uh, uh, reputation in, in Washington remains very, uh, uh, you know, very potent. Um, you know, he is, um, uh, I mean, he, he wrote books that are still read on, the, on, the, on these topics. He um, really attempted to take uh, the best of, I think, the Reformed tradition and apply it in, in practical ways to public life. Um, and so, I, I mean, I was very privileged last year uh, to give the, um, the Paul Henry lecture here um, and, uh, and to meet some of his family. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that represents the best in politics I would uh, only add one point, which is um, I find more of these people in Washington, I meet more of these people in Washington than you'd think. Um, you know, there is a populism that condemns, uh, you know, Washington as a cesspool of corruption. And, uh, and I actually find, I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, I talked to members of the Senate and House, um, you know, there's obviously a great variety in a democracy of the quality of public service, but I find many people who are sincere, principled, um, and trying to bring some kind of moral construct to what they do. Um, you know, give people that you've never heard of, so you get examples of scandal all the time, but you get somebody like uh, Senator Bozeman from, from Arkansas, which Americans don't really know who he is, but he's Republican, very conservative, head of the uh, malaria caucus in the Senate, has been involved in this issue forever. He's an ophthalmologist, travels a lot in the developing world. Um, I see a lot of these examples when I'm in Washington. I think it, we shouldn't be too harsh um, about, the, uh, about the quality of our public servants. Uh, our political institutions are not particularly functional, but there's a, a significant number of really uh, good people in politics. Okay. I applaud the uh, 
statement that you made about the fact that uh, although many Americans feel that our country is a Christian nation, uh, you recognize and uh, supported the fact that the Founding Fathers did not see us as a Christian nation with any kind of a Christian state religion. And uh, I appreciate your saying that. Uh, last week, uh, oh, and I am a practicing Christian, last week I uh, received a letter uh, from the head office of Pax Christi USA. It was sent out to all the rank and file members, uh, which I am one. And uh, what it announced was that uh, it, it seems to be changing its historic priority uh, to advocate for world peace and it's, it's dropping that down, or it appears to me it's dropping that down into uh, a, another priority under a new president, and that priority will be uh, something about healing racism. I guess that's as good a way of putting it as any. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that that was uh, a practical shift from a political standpoint due to the... Uh, growing numbers of American citizens who are tired of 10 years of unwinnable wars. Well, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the organization itself to, to really offer, you know, a, um, a view on that shift. Um, you know, I would, you know, I think the promotion of peace is a, is a Christian hallmark. Um, as I said, I'm not a pacifist. Um, but I, I think that the priority of kind of healing and reconciliation is a, is a distinctive Christian priority um, and something that, that uh, Christians have, predict, have generally bought, brought as a, as a priority in international affairs. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think it would be a mistake to... I think that there are a variety of traditions as a, uh, and views on how that's achieved, but I think it would be a mistake to, uh, to abandon that kind of goal. I'm happy to do one sure, more. I'm sorry yeah. I didn't get anyone up there. So. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Um, thank you for taking the question. I have kind of a twofold question. First, um, along the line of foreign policy, as you've been mentioning with malaria and AIDS relief, um, I'd like to know your opinion on the kind of conversation swirling around the idea of declining American hegemony. Mm -hmm. um, and following that, then what you think will be the role of communities of faith um, internationally and domestically in sort of filling in that gap um, if American hegemony does decline and as you mentioned um, you believe American leadership is really important in a lot of these initiatives this, you've raised a complicated foreign policy matter because I think we are moving there's no question that we're moving uh, towards a more multipolar world when it comes to uh, economic and military power and that's not because America is in decline or is uh, failing, it's because vast parts of the world are rising towards um, middle-class status and greater uh, national wealth and influence. Um, and that is actually one of the greatest uh, developments in modern history. Um, 
You know, we have taken through, uh, you know, for all the criticisms of our international order of, of trade and uh, economic interactions, um, we have seen uh, more than a billion people in China and India in very short amount of time rise out of poverty. Um, it's the reason that we have problems when it comes to uh, shortages of water and, and uh, you know, and fossil fuels and um, you know, other, uh, other strategic resources is basically because vast portions of the world are rising towards affluence. Um, having once been in, in recent times uh, subject to uh, famine and widespread poverty. Um, so, I, you know, in a weird way, we're dealing with the consequences of, uh, uh, of success in our world. Um, you know, China's going to be a power because they're growing. Um, and uh, India is in the same category. Um, and America is going to have to accommodate that and do it in, in the proper way. But I don't think that we're failing. I think that much of the rest of the world is rising. Um, and so we have to accommodate in ways that actually uh, serve our interests and values. Um, and that's a, it's a major foreign policy challenge. And there will be rivalries in various regions of the world. Um, now, you talked about the role of NGOs and, uh, uh, and religious institutions. Um, I guess I, I would only respond. I, th I think your point is well taken. But I think there's a tremendous dynamic partnership between programs like uh, USAID or particularly PEPFAR and, and, uh, and the President's Malaria Initiative between government and private sector institutions. These are the major implementers of these programs. Um, so I don't really see a huge distinction between saying, well, it's either government or uh, private efforts, particularly when it comes to international development. Unlike in America, where we have tended to build, you know, massive uh, uh, bureaucracies uh, in the provision of social services, um, USAID and other institutions do much of their work through private institutions, um, both local partners and, uh, you know, World Vision and CARE and a lot of other institutions. Um, and so I, I think that there uh, is a lot of uh, common um, interests and common ground between the role that America wants to play on development and disease and the importance of... Uh, of uh, faith-based um, and other organizations in the provision of social services. So. Mr. Gerson will be available in the West Lobby to sign books and uh, greet you there. <laughs>